Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place to make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Hello, everyone. I'm super happy to be here today with Serge Massis. We're on Let's Talk AI, and I'm super excited for this episode. I've been waiting for, for a while because I have some crazy questions. I know some of you guys told me questions uh, to ask Serge. So, Serge, first of all, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm doing great. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, I always like to ask in the podcast for the guests to present themselves in a few sentences. It can be either fully professionally or who the person is. Could you introduce yourself to, to me and to the audience? Well, I'm a lead data scientist in uh, agriculture, a big agriculture company. And um, I, I like to, I work in AI and I love to talk about AI, more specifically machine learning. Um, yeah, before that, I, I had a long career in web development, uh, all sorts of things, actually, not just web development, um, 3D modeling, uh, web marketing. Uh, I even owned a bubble tea shop. It's a long story. Hmm. But yeah, I, I'm just a very curious person, and uh, I like to get my hands dirty <laughs> with a lot okay. of different things. Awesome. Awesome. You mentioned that uh, you didn't start right away with data science. You've done a lot of things. So, th so I want to, to get back on that right away. But um, just before, I would like to ask you, what are you trying to achieve today? Ah, uh, today? Um, I and... mean, not like today, today, but I know it's a tough question, but I always like yeah. to know because you have this whole career and maybe some people know you for specific things, but what are your goals today? Uh, well, my, my goal, I guess, is to just keep learning. I'm always interested in learning new things. And as I'm learning, I'm also teaching other people, which is kind of cool, too. So mm. the stuff I've already kind of learned enough to teach, I, I'm teaching. So I, I guess that wasn't like a goal like several years ago. Mm. But I realized um, in my prior career in web development, I was... Uh, I I was a team leader and mentor, and so it was a lot of what I did mm. in my job. So mm. I I still I guess I do that in one way or another through my books. Um, I occasionally do like sessions with people that reach out to me, mm. and I also teach them stuff. So I, I it's very gratifying. I I don't think there's like this long term goal. I want to be like mm -hmm. this or that. Um, mm -hmm. I just want to continue growing and evolving. I have mm. a growth mindset and my, 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 I guess my goals are more like short term and medium term. They're not so long term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like improve moment. every day and, and just focus mm -hmm. on the process and not the, and not the, the, the end destination. And do you prefer teaching or learning or is it a balance of both? It's a balance. I, 
I prefer learning, but because I mean I can't I can't do one without the other. But yes, um, yeah. yeah, it it is gratifying to to master something and then pass it on. Mm. This is a great in introduction because um, after later in the podcast we're going to talk about uh, the book you're writing. Um, um, that is going to be the continuation of of a book that is already published. Um, so, so I'm super excited to know your approach about um, about learning, about teaching, and about uh, a lot of topics. I want to deep dive with you into like specific use cases of machine learning, just to have some insights of like what framework do you use to approach problems and how do you how do you approach them. Um, uh, but um, let's start from, let's say, the beginning. So you mentioned that you had quite a, a journey, uh, yeah. a professional journey. What made you, uh, what led you into data science and machine learning? Uh, well, I, I was already always interested in computers. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't see it then. I just saw it as a tool where I could solve problems creatively. You know, so I, I got into programming because of that. Um, then I, I discovered, you know, through my parents, I discovered, you know, more boring applications other than, you know, games and things like that, such as spreadsheets mm. and databases. Mm. Um, and at the time, they were very boring because they weren't used to store a lot of information. You couldn't. You just couldn't. There were, like, all kinds of limitations. Um, and their interface was horrendous. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking like, uh, you know, like uh, monochrome screens with just like boxy little lines. And, you know, you could only put so many different characters in a cell and um, it took forever to make a spreadsheet. But mm. I, I I started to see some potential that I started to use spreadsheets uh, back mm. then um, as as a teenager. And then um, as as I grew older, I, I kind of saw it as like a utility, not something I could, you know, you know, drive a lot of creative value from because mm -hmm. there was, you know, the potential was there, but you just couldn't store enough. You couldn't store enough variety of information in so many different ways as you can now. So um, I got focused on the internet because of that, because it, you know, it was this untapped source of knowledge and, mm -hmm. and everything. But um, it wasn't until I, I started working in web development and then, I started to work for these sites that would just accumulate tons of data. But at the time, you know, you couldn't store past like a month's worth of log files and and customer information was like limited to the, you know, the bare minimum you need to know about them, right? Because mm -hmm. you couldn't store that much. And so it became a point in time where it just became cheap to store as much as you could. And then you could analyze all of it. Mm. And uh, I guess that was like the beginning of my journey with like business intelligence, although that was in my title, nobody called me like that. It was like the head of web web development, but um, the, all the people in the company knew if they they wanted data about their departments, they come to me. They yeah. wanted to know, you know, um, say I I manage the CRM in the company, the customer customer relationship management system, and so they wanted to know details about the CRM they couldn't get from the CRM system itself. They would come to me. They want to see the connection between the CRM and all the different marketing channels. They would come to me because I had all the connections between mm. all the different sources. Mm -hmm. So I would generate all these reports. Um, 
And um, that's when I, I hadn't quite realized then that my journey would take me to data science. Mm-hmm. I, I still saw myself fundamentally as a builder of things. Okay. You know, I didn't see myself as, you know, I obviously like every, data was at the core of everything, but I didn't, say, I didn't think of analytics as uh, something I did. Mm. Um, strangely, although it, it at some points it would occupy like a third of my time or more, but um, it wasn't until later I started to ponder on that, realize there were people actually doing that job. You know, mm. I think uh, uh, I, I start another job in 2013, I think, and uh, and I for the first time I met someone that was their job was business intelligence, mm. right? and it it was weird because I I was deriving more information that they were, and it's like, hey, I found this, and they were like, no, but this and this other thing, but I I had more reasons to validate my hypothesis than they did, but mm. you know the thing is I didn't have that background, I couldn't call myself oh I'm a business intelligence guy, you know. Mm. So um, I, I didn't know it was viable for me to move into the career, into that career till, you know, like more and more, it became more like programming became part of it. Mm. it. It always was in some circles, but for people that were starting to use Tableau and systems like that in Excel, it, it wasn't, it didn't have to be all about programming. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on, as kind of machine learning came into the fold as something accessible for everybody, then all of a sudden, like there's this need for people that can handle both worlds, right? Both yeah. the ones with the graphical interfaces as well as, you know, like ETL as I had done, um, you know, APIs and all a bunch of other stuff, including machine mm. learning. So that's that's kind of how I I got into that. Uh, I created a startup, I, and that startup required machine learning, and so that was my foray into machine learning back in 2015, 16. Hmm. So you you created a, a startup at the really beginning of uh, of machine learning and these concepts, right? Um, about this period when you when you create your startup, uh, because before you mentioned like how there was uh, at the really beginning there was uh, really poor data, and then like. Um, having data were becoming cheaper and cheaper. Um, you mentioned tools like uh, Excel, data visualization, Tableau. Uh, and then you mentioned like you start working with APIs, uh, you start working with ETLs, um, moving data. So at what point did you decide that you wanted to go on your own and you wanted to do machine learning applied to, I would assume, business? Oh, well, once I applied it to my startup, um... I, I, my my plan was just to work on the startup. Okay. Okay. But the 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 startup um, ran out of funds, <laughs> um, and so then I had to come up with a new plan. Okay. And so that new plan said, okay, well, I'm going to be serious about this, um, and I'm 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 going to transition into this field. So mm-hmm. a good signal for that, not only for others but also to myself, to gain mm-hmm. confidence in it, was to go mm-hmm. and get a. A degree so i got a, a master's in data science um and after that i i started to um you know seek jobs in that in, with that specific title mm-hmm. because before that it was kind of unclear to people mm-hmm. looking for jobs i've done the work for many years i had done etl since 
I don't know, 2004, 2005 and APIs around even before that. But mm -hmm. uh, and it, it just wasn't clear, you know, that that was what you did, right? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I kind of had to have that clear signal in my resume that that's now what I did. So um, and also I, I learned quite a bit in the masters. It wasn't just about getting a title. I did get a better, you know, statistical foundation. Mm. And um, I learned some new methods. I learned more about computer vision, you know, mm. and uh, so I really enjoyed that. Hmm. So um, you, you went for a master to have like improve your fundamentals and maybe have like more ideas about um, where it, like what kind of technique you can apply. Um, and you mentioned before that you are yourself a huge learner and you've been learning um, uh, through your entire journey. You teach a lot, you mentor a lot. Uh, would you have like tips uh, for the people who are listening? Um, would you have some tips um, independently of where they are at their uh, in their career? Like some key lessons, not necessarily about technology, but about the learning process of things. Would you have some tips to share um, on this topic? Yeah, well, whatever you want to learn, I I see it as as the biggest hack to be play. Um, and and play is is about excitement. It's not like you're you're trying to build something. It's just you're just interested in in a particular tool. A particular kind of problem, uh, an industry, and and you just do something involving that, so you keep that excitement going. So it's it's like a very simple, I guess, piece of advice. I think a lot of people go for like I want to learn machine learning, so I'm gonna I'm gonna download the, the 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 most common data sets people use for that, and they're not even interested in the problem, right? And so they don't learn it as well. But if they've already worked in an industry and they're excited about that industry, they should just, or maybe it's not an industry they've worked in, but they're just interested and curious about it. They should use that. I mean, for instance, if your thing is music and you, you love like, you know, you want to, you love all the, the the statistics behind all the artists, or maybe your thing is sports. Download a data set about that. Uh, you know, examine it. Uh, maybe find a problem you want to solve through machine learning, and then go through that uh, instead of kind of going through all these recipes that already exist online involving the most boring data sets ever. You know. <laughs> And, and work on that. I think it's just uh, a question of first finding what you're passionate about and working on that. And and then seeing everything else as a tool to that. But also don't try to make it all about the tool because it just might be the wrong tool for the job. Not every data set is meant to be, you know, uh, used in machine learning. <laughs> Uh, some are more like, okay, a project for Tableau or something else, you know, they're more like explorative. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's an interesting question. When is the difference between, um, I mean, the answer shouldn't be, uh, uh, like, when is the difference? Like, at what point do you tell to yourself, um, okay, I'm, I'm going to go more for a, 
analysis of the data, I'm going to import it in Tableau, in, in Power BI, or I'm going to do things with the data. I could assume that you can do first the visualization and then go further with models, but um, how, how do you approach like problem solving in the industry? Um, how do you approach it? Well, it, it starts with a question, but for every question you should ask several questions back. So it's, it's not like sometimes people will tell you, I want to solve this problem. And they're already telling you the solution is machine learning. I want you to solve this problem. And you're like, hold on, wait, you know, let me, let me first examine the data and see if mm. that's even a possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, and even if it's a false possibility, does that solve your problem? So mm. you kind of have to push back and ask them, you know, what is the problem precisely? Mm. Because they might just give you part of it. You know, they might just give their perspective of what the problem is. Mm. And um, the problem is really not something that should be solved through machine learning. Maybe you realize through the data that it's just the it's so clear. The, 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 the decision uh, boundary is so clear. It doesn't even need machine learning. Maybe you mm. realize or you could just draw a line through a threshold and that's, it's just a simple if that will, you know, solve all the problems. So what's the point of machine learning? Mm. So, um, I think it's, it's, you, you have to examine it, uh, from a point of view of skepticism, you know, it's not like, mm -hmm. uh, especially if it's coming from the business because the business have uh, a very good perspective of what they need, but at the same time, the, the the idea of AI and machine learning has been uh, hyped. So mm. it's it's seen as like the universal like hammer that can solve everything. Mm -hmm. And that's not always the case. Um, and even if it could solve a lot of things, it's it might be overkill. So mm. um, yeah, I, I don't think there's like this, this rule where I can tell you like, this is when and this is not. I mean, I, I think machine learning is best for very complex cases that can't be easily uh, explained by a human um, that a human has challenges with. Um, like one of the questions I like to ask in my, my industry uh, in agriculture is how good are farmers at X problem you're describing at me? You know, how good are them at uh, estimating yield? How good are them on anticipating what kind of diseases they'll get because based on that you understand you know uh if it's worth it what kind of metrics you should use and 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 what how to evaluate these metrics you know mm. so i i think it it ultimately the value of machine learning is to be able to um assist human decision making or in some cases, supplant it. Mm -hmm. So if if it can't even do that, then what's the point? Yeah. Yes. And now that we're discussing about your industry and, and like how to approach a machine learning problem and how how we need to be to have this skepticism towards uh, the the business um, coming and and having a, a need, could you maybe share with us? Um, an example of a time uh, where you had to solve a problem through machine learning and you and you really enjoyed um, the the solution and the process could you have an experience to share and like the approach of the problem solving hmm 
Yeah, like uh, many years ago, I was working in um, 3D printer manufacturer or 3D printer manufacturer. Okay. So one of the problems they had that was uh, of um, very high value for them to fix was printers getting re returned for defects. Okay. So it's kind of costly when, uh, you know, not only because you, of the shipping and all that, sending a printer back, but the other thing that's costly is, um, you know, potential of losing the customer, yeah. potential of the customer uh, not buying as much supplies because they stopped using the printer. So um, from that standpoint, I, I forget what it was, but it, it, it did amount to potential losses of thousands of dollars for customers, hmm. especially as it's, it's highly weighted because some of them are industrial cust customers that are using the printer all every day, right? Mm -hmm. A lot. So um, the, the problem was the, I was trying to solve was anticipate uh, when a printer would fail okay. based on all the data that the printer would generate. So um, whenever a printer would print, it would generate like, uh, you know, like temperature, uh, you know, what kind of, what amount of uh, movement the motors are doing and how they're doing it, you know, like mm -hmm. very specific things as mm -hmm. well as like very uh, kind of, summary statistics on what was being printed, you know, mm. what kind of resolution was involved, uh, you know, uh, what size of the model, uh, what is the complexity, the amount of vertices the model has, things like that. Yeah. So um, this, this problem involved figuring out basically what is the best way to kind of break it down. Yes. And a lot of people would have said, well, the best way is to take a single model, a multi-classification model, and output what kind of uh, failure we'll have. Or maybe forget about what kind of failure, just whether it's going to fail or not yeah. within the next few prints, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so the first thing I figure out, what, um, what was the best, what are the best thresholds? That's yeah. often one of the best questions to ask. You know, uh, when you're talking about things like surviving something or, you know, um, you, you want to see the point where it becomes eminent, you know, which might not be right away. You want to say, OK, well, is it going to be in so many days or is it going to be in so many prints? How should I measure this? Hmm. So um, I, I found the best threshold for that. I forget what it was, but I found it and it wasn't the same for every kind of failure. Okay. So that's what led me to think, well, I shouldn't deal at this as a single problem because they're, they're, their behavior is always different. Their features are different. Their, their thresholds are different, you know? Hmm. And so I shouldn't, I shouldn't deal with them in a similar fashion. Because so just a good question, like, for example, you had like different um, printer models that were having different types of error. Is that correct? Not, that not only the, that's true. That's a good component, different printer models with okay. different software. Okay. Uh, that was another, in some of, in some of the failures, software was a big, um, a big indicative, you okay. know, uh, because there was one particular, uh, software built 
that was more prone to error mm. for one of the failures. Um, and, and in some cases, it was it, they were almost always the same model of printer. So it wasn't so much of a problem. In the newer model, there wasn't enough data for it to, to actually kind of come up with a better, um, a good good way of kind of predicting it because there was not enough um, data for it yet. But mm. at that point, I figured that the, the best way of doing it was just having separate models, one per failure type. There was a, a kind of failure was an optic failure and that has to do with uh, the laser of the printer uh, kind of wearing out over time. And that was mm. one of the easiest ones to rule out. Okay. So, and then there were other kinds of failures. I think there were maybe eight or nine. So okay. what I did was I, I said, okay, I'm going to train different models. Um, at, at first, I, it didn't matter what kind of model it was. I tried pretty much everything you know, from naive Bayes to <laughs> neural yeah. networks and XGBoost and everything. Mm -hmm. So it didn't matter. The point is that it was the best at discriminating uh, the failure. Okay. Right? And so then uh, I, I would do them in cascade. So some of them were similar, but I knew if it was an optic failure, it could, could not possibly be a different kind of failure. So I first ruled that one out and I ruled that out. Then it would go on to the next model and the next model and next model. So it ended up being like a cascade of different mm. models, one mm -hmm. discriminating under another, another, another. And then uh, I had a, a last kind of catch-all one that would determine just if it would fail in general. What mm. was the probability? And that one would just, I don't know, there's like an unknown failure that might happen in the next few days. And that's, okay. so I had like okay. a catch-all. Um, okay. And that was it. Oh. And is this catch-all, uh, is this... Uh... Like an ensemble learning, like do you glue the models together or do you just take the outputs of each model? And if there is one that have a high probability based on the metrics that you used uh, to, to detect a failure, then the overall logic would say, okay, it's going to fail. It might going to fail. Yeah, no, this wasn't an ensemble. And in that case, it's more like a one over, I think it's one over rest uh, kind of scenario. Okay. Uh, but it wasn't, it was just uh, pro programmatically, it wasn't formalized in any kind of structure like that. It was just okay. uh, uh, a bunch of if statements uh, okay. in an API. Um, okay. Yeah, beyond that, I didn't do much more uh, for that project to formalize it. But yeah, I, I did think of doing something like uh, uh, an ensemble. Hmm. But at the time, I think I, 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 I spent so much time getting to design the solution by the time I came mm -hmm. to the modeling and everything. I, it, it just happened very quickly mm -hmm. in a couple of weeks and then it had to be ready. <laughs> um, I see. I see. Yeah. Awesome. That's a, that's a, a very insightful experience. Uh, I myself, I'm at the beginning, uh, uh, of a career in the field and, and hearing you approaching problems, uh, gives ideas for coming solutions to to find so so thanks yeah. for sharing um so so that's um very interesting so we mentioned how you came into data science uh we we went a bit through uh, an example um i would like to ask you about uh, the book uh, um the upcoming book and democratizing ai but um just before that 
um, I want to ask you about the future of AI and the future more specifically, more specifically, um, AI means a lot of things nowadays, like the future of machine learning and the, the jobs, uh, the, the data science jobs, uh, head data scientist jobs, um, tasks to be tackled, uh, in the future. Could you give us a bit of your vision of the future, um, of artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science in the field? Well, I, I think right now everything is very correlation based. I mean, um, and, and that's, that's both been an asset because that's like the simplest thing we can find in the data without getting too involved. Mm. Right. Um, at the same time, it's also a liability because that's not really at the end, at the core of what we're trying to find out with these, uh, you know, the questions we generally ask in machine learning are ones that uh, we want to see a causal connection with. So I, I, I do think in the future of AI, there's, there's definitely more causal component. Did you uh, say causal, causal, causal components? Yeah. C can you tell me what is causal components? Well, that's, that's basically, uh, I'm, I'm just touching on the possibility of, of causal machine learning taking over uh, the field of AI. It's, okay. a, it's a growing field. There's a lot of more models coming up, okay. but it, it requires a lot more engagement from the practitioner Okay. Uh, from a domain expertise point of view. Because right now, the way machine learning is done is very model centric. And it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's, best, it's definitely like a question of, oh, let's just throw a bunch of features here uh, and see what sticks, you know, like taking all this yes. spaghetti and just throwing at the wall and see what sticks. Mm -hmm. and, and so far it, it works. But it doesn't work to the extent that we want it to. It makes a lot of sp spurious kind of connections, like um, even things like, okay, a classic case of computer vision is, okay, uh, let's make a, 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 a classifier between, that, between a dog and a wolf, right? What's, mm. And so uh, we throw all these images from online, from dogs and wolves, and then we realize it works fairly well, but why does it work well? Once you look into it, it, it it's, it's taking cues from the environment. It's, realize, it's saying, okay, a wolf is a wolf because it's near the snow. Mm. It's not a wolf for any other reason than that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Then um, we, it, for human, those things are kind of obvious. So how can we make uh, machine learning work in the same way? where it's it's making these very subtle connections between um you know uh different things um that that are encoded in the data hmm. and so it for it took uh, humans a lot of time to develop that intuition hmm. so how do we bake it into the models all these uh connections um they're, they're, it usually requires a lot of domain expertise even mm. if we're talking about tabular data sets and we're saying, okay, well, we have this financial firm and they have this new algorithm to kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, decide if to trade, uh, you know, or not to trade this particular mm -hmm. stock today. Uh, a domain expert would say, well, we can't because the market conditions are like this. And there'll be this whole like really complicated causal graph 
between all the different variables. This one affects this one, this one affects this one. This. If you throw that at any machine learning model today, all that is lost. These connections are lost. They all kind of seem to correlate with each other. So mm. it, the, the model is not really good at being able to determine what impacts what. They all mm. kind of impact each other at varying degrees, but it's not able to make that connection that one particularly goes in one direction or another. One is a cause, another one is effect. Hmm. So if we bake that into the models, we come up with smarter models. So I'm, I'm a, even in machine learning, I'm a huge proponent of putting guardrails. So something I describe in my book is called monotonic constraints. Mm -hmm. and, it, and what it is, is you, 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 you have variable um, connections, you have a, um, you know, a target and, and a predictor, and the predictor is supposed to con relate to that target in a specific way. Like for instance, in my field in agriculture, you know that you know, more sun leads to higher growth of the plants. Yeah. So the more sun, the sunlight the plants go, the more they grow. Or the more days that go by, the more the plant is going to grow. It's not going to decrease in size, mm. right? So uh, one way to bake that connection into the model is to say, well, there is a monotonic relationship between them. You know, as as the days go by or the sunlight increases, the plant must grow mm. higher and higher. So. Mm. Um, it's it's um it's an upward trajectory, if mm. you will, and so there's no way it goes in the opposite direction at any point, and mm -hmm. and and there's a lot of relationships like that that you can put guardrails with. Um, mm. In the same way, I think you can do the same with uh, causal relationships. Is, is a kind of guardrail in a way because it's it's making sure that the that the correlation that the that the model is uh, kind of perceiving in the data is only going in one direction. So that's one way of seeing it. Okay. Okay. That's so, very interesting. Uh, that's one trend I think that's going to come out, uh, but there's a bunch of other ones. Like okay. um, we were talking earlier about what happens when you have to build a model that deals with different scenarios, like, um, yes. you know, like with the, with the printer, scenario yeah. you have uh, you have all these different features but they they lead to different outcomes mm. uh depending on a single variable which what variables that is what what kind of failure you're expecting yes so the the outcome and and the, the things that lead to it are different um the way models are built today they're very dense so you're expecting <laughs> you're expecting all all features to always play, you know, always have an impact. In so, even if it's in a tiny way, they're always having an impact, or they're allowed to have an impact. So uh, they're breaking out of that dense mentality where you know you're you're you know everything's operating at every single time will allow us to be more creative. And there's uh, some work at Google happening right now. Mm -hmm. involving that kind of model. <laughs> um, I forget what they called it, but I, I'm excited about it because it's precisely, you know, it's, it's ridiculous to think like even any, any brain is not operating at full cylinders. Like at any given time, only certain parts of your brain are firing neurons, you know? Yes. So 
we we have to build models with that kind of thinking that we have uh, parts that fire at certain times and others that don't. Mm. Um, and so um, that's another trend. There's also going to be a lot going on with uh, hopefully on the with blockchain. I think there's going to be more integrations having to mm. do with uh, you know data provenance tracking, uh, you know, kind of creating a trail of what goes on in the modeling process so we can better uh, track them. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, I mean, off the top of my head, I can't think. There, there's just so many different little micro trends, not only in the modeling space, but also in the data engineering space, in the MLOps space, and those were, will impact uh, what's going on in the modeling space. Hmm. Okay. Okay. That's um, very interesting. Um, I want to ask you about a specific topic that I think uh, is a very over, uh, over discussed at the moment, but I will mm -hmm. keep the, the suspense mm -hmm. and I will ask you something else just before. Um, what do you, uh, what do you think about quantum computing, uh, oh. and the impact in the field? I honestly think it's a bit overhyped. I, okay. I think quantum, uh, like general AI is, you know, quite a, quite a bit away, you know, mm. uh, I, I don't think it's going to have the immediate impact in the field. Okay. I, there is a need because, um, if you see the trajectory of Moore's law, we're, we're soon coming to a slowdown. Uh, we, we won't be able to go beyond, you know, physically, we can't go beyond soon enough uh, than the amount of transistors we're trying to pack in with at least silicon. Yeah. So uh, we we have a need to actually come up with something to um, uh, keep the keep the, the innovation going with electronics. And we're, we're not going to get that through through the means we have right now. And I've seen a lot of other alternatives that are that are growing. You know, one of them is is using analog computing. Um, okay. Analog right now, like for I don't know seven decades, at least the paradigm we is everything through digital, so it's all ones and zeros. But when you think about it, uh, AI, like everything, is the kind of mathematics that are required in AI is is all with continuous floating point numbers, mm. like large matrices of them. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive to continue using digital. Mm. Um, uh, a very promising startup. I, I wrote about this in LinkedIn um, last year from Texas. Um, is it has created this analog uh, chip, and 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 it it, it works. It the same way. It, it doesn't need anything special to work, in the sense that it is uh, electricity can be, you know, uh, designed to work. I mean, by default, it's already working with, uh, you know, a, a, you, you have a continuous amount of current and you can, you can use the way the current works. I'm not an electrician, or a, but um, I'm trying to explain this the way yeah. I understand it, uh -huh. which is you can use the current to kind of do all these multiplications, add, additions, mm. uh, multiplications, with the vault, the amount of current that's that's happening in the chip, 
So mm -hmm. you can generate using this, you can generate the, the um, you can do all the multiplications on a very fine scale where you're doing like uh, vector uh, um, uh, operations on uh, mm. mass and okay. and without the need of all the current that's currently being used for mm. um for the digital uh okay. analogous to that so um that's one of the benefits the other one is just far more efficient because it's it's not just it's not counting with two fingers it's counting with <laughs> infinite amount of fingers mm. so uh, it's it's just far more efficient so okay. i think it's going to that's one direction I could take. Another one is through neuromorphic computing or um, even using biology in, yeah. instead of material science. So like there's been a lot of studies that, you know, you can store data in DNA mm. <laughs> or you can use uh, mushrooms for certain things. I, I forget what they can be used for, but it's very interesting yeah. uh, where, where this might go. Uh, okay. If we kind of just kind of get out of this idea that everything has to be digital and, and it's silicon. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Um, I still need to understand well the difference between analog and uh, com com um, quantum computing uh, because both are like uh, not zeros and one anymore, but uh, I will... Uh, I will research onto it. I might oh, do yeah. some some flashcards yeah. that I will post on LinkedIn about the difference and trying to explain this uh, topic uh, better to the Let's Talk AI community. Awesome! So thanks, thanks a lot for for sharing uh, for sharing the things. Um, I will end the suspense. Maybe you forget, <laughs> but I will end the suspense about my other question, which is generative AI and the famous ChatGPT. Um, mm -hmm. I, I feel like. Uh, we I needed to ask you about generative AI, and it is interesting because you mentioned about uh, models that are not like uh, going to do only only um, a, an output of a classification of uh, like very specific things. Um, how do you see AI, uh, generative AI, being used in approaching projects that you you might face on, on a daily basis? Um, do you think that generative AI can really Enhance um, some of the points you were mentioning before, or what's your state on the topic? Mm. Well, generative AI, I mean, like other kinds of AI, is is dependent on the data you train it with. Um, mm. And so, my my concern with it is the same it is with with other AI, except it's it's harder to detect when it, you know the biases. It's very ad hoc how you figure these things out. Yeah. You know, uh, for instance. How how can you tell if if uh, AI is is uh, sexist? If it's uh, if it's always if you ask it to kind of generate you know female characters, if they're always going to be uh, sexualized? Yeah. How how can you tell that you know um, objectively? And, and and more importantly, how can you counter that? And 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 it all boils down to the way you treat the data. So it takes. Right now, a lot of that grunt work of labeling data and doing that is, is done by either the people that put it online to begin with, you know, possibly many years ago, just random people or kind of me mechanical Turk workers in uh, third world countries. Mm. So uh, we have to be more careful about these things. 
Yeah. You know, because it, and and it's really tricky because what kind of criteria you're using to either put something in a model or not, and especially uh, what scale do you need to make a good model? Because we're using millions of images, are you know millions of pieces of text, and it's it's not necessarily going through human eyes before it's doing that, before it's using mm. this this information. So. Mm. Uh, how do we make the process fit our needs uh, right now and in the future? And what kind of needs are those? Because that's another thing. What are these models for? If they're general purpose, general purpose could be anything. And we've seen mm. it before with chat GPT, you know, like, uh, you know, people were using it to come up with recipes, to build bombs and, and, and things like that. And of course you could say, well, you know, people were doing that already with Google. But the, the difference is Google is more of a controlled environment. Mm. Uh, you know, like it, over the years, they figure out the best way of kind of protecting the, the general public. Whereas ChatGPT was just, uh, you know, I'm not saying a lot, some effort wasn't put into it, but not nearly as much effort is impossible as, as, as Google to kind of put the guardrails necessary to cover every single bad use case you could think of. Yes. Mm. And as an author, do you think... Uh, that generative AI will make everyone write books or like, do, do you, how do you approach as an author? Um, and I'm going to ask you about your upcoming book uh, uh, right after that, but uh, how do you approach generative AI to like maybe accelerate the process of writing or improving the writing of one or like, how do you see this? I, I don't think it's um, creatively, I don't think it's stifling at all to have extra tools. Um, and I, I, I don't believe that it's going to necessarily disrupt the space where it just becomes more difficult uh, to be a writer or be a, a creative person. Mm -hmm. I think it's just, uh, it does up the game in the sense that like in, in a time where anybody can become a mediocre artist or writer, you know, and I don't, I don't mean that disparagingly, but you know, like it's, these tools aren't perfect. You know, they're still making all kinds of mistakes because they're based on all pretty much everything out there. So they're like an average of that. So it's still going to be competitive for someone to rise to the top for someone. It's, it's like, yeah, like, let's take it for, for instance, auto-tune. So people can, can sing with, you know, near perfect pitch, even though it sounds kind of robotic with mm -hmm. auto-tune. Mm -hmm. So that has lowered the barrier to entry to become a singer, but people can still tell what are the best singers in the world at the moment. They can still tell, oh, that person really has talent regardless of that. Um, in a way, it's also enriched music by creating a style. Some people don't like it, but there, there's this auto-tune style. People, uh, uh, some people appreciate it. So it's created a, like a different kind of uh, genre, and just or uh, not just one genre, but a series of subgenres based on that. Mm. So I, I'd say it's it's not it's not necessarily something that's meant to displace existing expression, uh, creative expression, but you know, enhance it, enrich it. And mm. it can be a, a tool even to help people that are already professional at it. 
you know. Mm. So uh, even artists that are good singers still use all kinds of tools to kind of enhance their already um, uh, great talents. Mm. Um, and I don't, I don't see that as a, necessarily a bad thing. Uh, there's, of course, purists out there that say, oh, well, people shouldn't be uh, doing that anymore because it's kind of, uh, there's, the, the beauty is in the imperfection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, that's more like a philosophical question. Yes. If, um, and I, I think that's actually one of the things that um, it's, it's always easy to pick up. Uh, what is fake and what is real based on either the lack of imperfections or or very odd imperfections based on the training data like how you'll you'll know that you know stable diffusion or dolly is always bad at you know making human hands right Um, but at the same time like the faces tend to be slightly more symmetrical than in real life and things like that Hmm. okay that's very interesting Thanks, uh, thanks for sharing. Um, I'm going to ask you about the book. So from my understanding, um, your upcoming book, you, you remind me the, the, the when it's going out, but uh, it's about democratizing AI. Uh, so I would like to ask you about um, yeah, the different topics you approach in the books, a bit why, and like what are some of the key messages that uh, should be in this book? Well, the, the, the idea behind it, is uh, anybody can play with AI these days. And it's, it's also uh, an opportunity to explain some of the basic foundations of what AI is in, and what AI mm-hmm. is and how it works, kind of dispelling some of the myths behind it. Yeah. Um, what I've realized is that there's, there's a lot of books on AI and they're, they either go in one or two camps. There's like the hands-on books for practitioners uh, you know, that work in the field uh, or want to work in the field. And then there's the high level kind of books that either go in one or two camps, either the ones that kind of hype the goodness of AI or, you know, AI on the worst case scenarios, right? So, mm-hmm. and, and there's nothing in the middle for people that just uh, want some of the hands-on stuff, but they're, they're by no means, they're not necessarily experts. Yeah. They don't want to become excerpts. They just want to play with it. Uh, or there's also the people, an, another um, another potential audience for my book would be those that are already like you, I, you and I in the field, but want to take a more playful approach to it. Okay. So the, the book is called DIY AI, Do-It-Yourself AI. And it's it covers a lot of topics that are not... Um, covered a lot in the academic books, nor of course, in the ones that are like less technical, like for instance, okay. facial recognition, uh, sound recognition, post mm. detection, um, and uh, a bunch of different generative uh, methods. You know, okay. how, do you, how, do you, how do you create your own uh, uh, chatbot? You know, that sounds like, I don't know, you're, you're, it could be you or your dead grandma or, you know, whoever you want. Mm. Um, or, you know, um, an author, a famous author. Um, and then you, you, there's an entire chapter devoted to um, generative art, you know, um, and, and the idea behind that chapter is to teach you how to make a, a virtual machu- uh, museum. So it, it uses augmented reality. 
there's so many different projects in this book that are uh, more about play than about build. You know, uh, sure, they tell, tell you a recipe, but there's variations you can do on your own. And the idea is to kind of um, tell people just, okay, you can follow the steps, you can deviate from them, but make sure you play, make sure you do something that you're passionate about with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is just a tool. Mm. So uh, play with the tool. Mm. So I'm interested to see what people come up with. Um, mm. You know, what do they use the facial recognition for? What do they do in, in their virtual museum? Mm. Um, and so on. It's it's uh, because uh, one thing that's happened over the last years is mm -hmm. that it's become um, passively, kind of passively. I wouldn't say like, um, you know, people don't know about it, but it's it's become more accessible. But yeah. even though it's become more accessible at the same time, um, there's there's still a bunch of myths. There's still a lot of buzz. It's 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 not just a tool, which is the way people should see it. Um, I think I kind of connected to the way things were when the Internet was brand new. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, there were people that were kind of scared of it. They were like you know, even scared of writing an email. Am I mm -hmm. doing it right? You know, like, like there was some kind of grave consequence to doing it wrong. And um, I, I think we, we need to break that so that people that are interested in it and are sufficiently technically capable of doing it uh, can do it, you mm -hmm. know. Yes. Um, eventually, I think, uh, you know, just like it happened with the internet, um, everybody and your grandmother will have... You know, AI models the same way. Everybody has a website. Uh, <laughs> I love my grandmother, but I doubt she will. Uh, she will have uh, soon uh, because she's trying still to fight with uh, paint to do a uh, few things. So, yeah. But uh, but this is uh, I totally understand the message, and I yeah. And uh, mommy, if you're listening this, and um, she's struggling also with English, so uh, slightly probably uh, probably I will help you implement uh, a model. Uh, like, uh, I don't know, for recipe. I'm sure she will uh, love that. That's awesome. <laughs> That's super yeah. cool. Um, and when is uh, when is this book coming out? Um, November. November. Okay. Yeah. So hang tight and, uh, and wait until November. Uh, that's perfect. Um, so I think we're at the end of the episodes. Um, I would have so many more questions, but... Um, Uh, but uh, maybe for an episode two, who knows? Let us know what you think of the episode uh, in the comments. And I still have three, uh, three more questions, uh, the three uh, finish line questions, let's say. So mm -hmm. the first one should be, if anyone is in the field or anyone were inspired to what you said or maybe want to uh, ask you a question or follow your, your content, your books, um, uh, your posts on LinkedIn, where people could reach out to you or know more about you. Well, there's there's only one of me. Uh, so if you search me in Google, you'll you'll certainly find my uh, my stuff. Um, you'll find my LinkedIn page. Also, if you search for me in, in either in Google or LinkedIn, you'll still find my LinkedIn page. Uh, Twitter, same deal. Um, I think those are the social media sites I'm more um, connected with. I mm -hmm. also have my uh, own uh, website. Um, it's search.ai you can find me there as well okay mm. you have your own domain search.ai yeah that's a that's a oh 
<laughs> I couldn't find thomas.ai, but um, that's awesome. All right, so I will put all the links in the description. The second question is, um, um, uh, could you, um, could you, do you have like any tips about um, about your learning journey, uh, like uh, things that really helped you, even though we kind of discussed it uh, a bit earlier? Uh, do yeah. you have like a, a few more tips for people who are learning, who want to grow their career, make decisions? Well, I, I think that the best thing is to kind of follow your passions, as I said earlier, and let those lead you to the best tools to kind of do what whatever it is you want to do with that. But don't don't start with uh, with answers. <laughs> lead with questions. Mm. So mm. it's it's better to have questions than you know assume you have the right answers. Um, mm. And then uh, connect with people uh, in the field and ask them those questions. They might be mm. able to guide you. Don't expect them to tell you, okay, one, two, three, you have to do that. Yeah. Just point mm. you in the right direction. Mm. I, I think mm. that's more important than anything. Mm. Um, and this is, this is funny. You mentioned finding that a community. Yeah. Finding a community. Yes. Yeah. All right. This is funny. This is funny that you mentioned uh, this approach because, uh, Uh, not later than today, I was struggling for like an hour or so on on an NLP task that I want to to realize, mm-hmm. and uh, and um, and uh, I I know this um, very NLP expert uh, Abdullah Trezor, and uh, mm-hmm. so I just reached out to him and I told him, all right, this is what I'm trying to do, and I've tried this and that. Um, how would you approach this problem? Like just like give me some insights, and he told me, all right you need to consider this and this and that. So maybe go in that direction. And I was super happy because after, after struggling myself with a few things, mm-hmm. I had kind of a guidance of things that I've saw. Like I, I literally saw those libraries and tried to do things with it, but I came back onto it and took more time to study the fundamentals behind and how it works. And, and it really saves me time. So like the balance between like trying fun things, as you mentioned, and like reaching out to someone, a community or Or, or someone that knows um, the direction, not maybe not the answer, but the direction to take. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Serge. Uh, my last question, my favorite one, do you have a message for the Let's Talk AI community? It can be both professional, personal, a mix, a balance of, uh, like just do you have a message uh, that defined you or that you want to share? Mm, that's a good one. Um, I, I'd say, you know, like just keep on learning. Um, It's all about uh, learning. We're, we're all in this journey together. I think uh, nobody can claim to be an expert. Um, I mean, I, I think a field has to be more or less, maybe not final, but almost to be able to say, oh, I'm an expert in this. Mm. And, um, or it, it, and that's not the case with AI. Mm. All right. That's cool. I will uh, note this to myself. And uh, put it on my wall and read it every morning. <laughs> I want to thank you so much, Serge, for coming on the sure. podcast. It was such a pleasure to having you. Um, I wish you all the best with everything. Look out for as uh, a book in November. And I mm-hmm. wish you to have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Congrats. You've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day.
Bye.